We're going to continue our teachings through the series, Alive to Thrive, pulling out of survival mode. And we've been looking at the first three chapters of Judges. We've looked at various passages in Old and New Testament. And tonight, I want us to look at an example of pulling out of survival mode in the book of Ruth. So turn with me, if you would, to the book of Ruth. But tell you what, before we even do that, let me open in prayer, okay? Spirit of God, I we recognize tonight that you are our teacher, and we just ask that you would speak so, so much truth to us, so very personally. Lord, if there is any here tonight who are stuck in survival mode, maybe even there's compromise in their life, you speak very personally to them, and God, by your grace, may they avail themselves to that grace and come out. Father, I pray for every single one of us that we would you would allow us to be able to walk in this mode of thriving and what that looks like. And I just ask you, Father, that even corporately as a true as a church may we learn to live in this thriving life in this abundant life that you have called us to that is hallmarked by servanthood and obedience we just ask you father that you would right now speak to our hearts through your word in jesus name amen well some of you have heard my story before so i just want you to remind you i want to remind you of it and that is about a gentleman that i met an older gentleman he was probably 60 years old so really really old yeah but that's my age and so anyway his name is frank i was like 25 years old i was like you know, fresh out of college, just got married, and I'm working at Ray's Lumber, okay? I, I majored in psychology to make five bucks an hour, I guess, doing some computer, da computer data entry stuff. And anyway, that's what was available to me at the time before I, I got my other degree. And so here I am, I'm working there, and, and he works there. Frank works there, and Frank is this kind of short guy, but man, he's a ball of fire, and he absolutely did not like the fact that the hardware store and the whole lumber yard was going online, uh, not online, but in, in the computer. And he just hated that. And so he would come to him, he would complain to me like all the time because I was the one who was putting everything online, okay? And so he, <laughs> Frank, was, Frank was a hoot, but Frank used to be a pastor. And Frank used to preach the gospel until a man in his denomination betrayed him. And it turned his heart so sour, so bitter. Frank would tell me, and, and Frank, you know, uh, amongst the expletives, he, he said, you know what, Mike? I can just remember sitting in my living room, he's single, sitting in my living room watching TV and there's a revolver next to my next to my armchair and I'm just waiting and hoping that pastor knocks on the door. And that's how seething and bitter he was. And I got like the whole load of that. And he had not changed since that day several decades prior. He'd grown up with parents and a mom in particular that physically abused him. And so he came to Christ, but there was still this baggage that had yet to truly be dealt with. And when he encountered this issue of bitterness, it just undid him. And, you know, here I am. I'm just, I'm a 25-year-old guy. I've never been through what he's been through. I know the word, at least somewhat, and I love Jesus with all my heart. I love telling people about Jesus. But here, you know, I'm just trying to think, God, what do I say to this guy? You know, I, 
He's been through so much in life. What do I have to offer him? And I did what I could, and I shared some truths with him. I'm going to tell you a little bit more of that story a little bit later on in the message. What could I do to help? Bitterness had so gotten a hold of him. Bitter, let me just tell you, bitterness is only one example of the things that will tank you. Bitterness is one example of an issue that when you embrace it, church, it will sink you. It will, it's, it's, it's like death itself getting a hold of your heart. And it will shut you off from people around you and especially from God himself. That is how disastrous and destructive bitterness is. And I want to read some, some portions of Ruth to you because Naomi herself had become embittered. Now, I want to be careful here in what she was embittered about and what she was apparently not embittered about, but she was flirting with bitterness. And that's the way I'm going to word it. She was flirting with bitterness. And I'm, I'm going to tell you right now, tonight, if you are flirting with bitterness, you need to run to the Jesus that people on Palm Sunday worshipped. And you need to run to him because he is your kinsman redeemer, something we're going to see about here today. And he is the only one that can take those life experiences that have embittered you and redeem you and redeem those circumstances in your life. He's the only one who can do it. He's the one who can take that bitterness and completely undo it because it will tie you up in knots. So, Let's look together. I'm going to read the first chapter of Ruth. And this sets the stage. I'm going to read a few other verses to kind of see how this progresses. How did Naomi pull out of survival mode? It says here, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name, Naomi, and the, two, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephratites from Bethlehem, Judah. Ephrata was a region. Judah, of course, was the tribe. Bethlehem was the town. And they went to Moab and lived there. Now, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women one named Orpah, and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Malon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When she heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, Naomi and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah, which would basically be heading north, going around the bend of the Dead Sea, the northern bend of the Dead Sea, and then heading west toward Bethlehem. Now Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you as you have shown kindness to your dead and in me, to your dead and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them, and they wept aloud, and said to her, 
We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons? Who would become your husbands? Return home. Excuse, do I have it? Excuse me. Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? This is considered the Levirate marriage rule law in Israel. Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. At this, they wept again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them, and the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Mara meaning bitter. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life full, excuse me, has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. I want us to see that Naomi's life had become bitter. You see here in verse 21, it says, I went away full but the Lord has brought me back empty. See, she had a husband. She had two sons when she left, but when she came back, no husband, no two kids. Let me just tell you this, that losing a husband and losing children, especially, can be the hardest thing that you will ever go through. I, I totally get it when she has, when she has become bitter, that God has, and God has, for some reason, permitted her life to have to go through all of this tragedy. Some people would rather not live. Losing a child many times can break up marriages. It is so devastating, so emotional, so opens the door to bitterness. Bitterness towards God, bitterness towards your spouse, could, could you have prevented it? The question goes, could I have prevented turning bitterness towards ourselves? Just living life in bitterness, if we're not bitter towards God or others, just saying, you know, my life is bitter and you hate life. And this is what Naomi was flirting with. She left Bethlehem. Do you know what Bethlehem means? It means house of bread. And 
that term lechem many times would just refer to food in general. See the play on words when food or, or the harvest, rain and harvest had finally come. In verse 9, it says, when she heard in Moab that the people, that the Lord had come to the aid of her, his people by providing food for them, Naomi and her daughters prepared to return home there by providing food. That's the Hebrew word for bread. I don't know why God permitted this famine in this region of Judah in Africa. I don't, I, we don't, we're not told why. Sometimes it's because the people had moved away from the Lord, had, had backslidden. Is it possible seeing when this takes place, that is, and so this is during the time of Boaz, and we're told at the very end, excuse me, we're told in Matthew 1 that Boaz's mother's name was Rahab. You remember Rahab? When they first come into the land of Canaan, they're going to take it, and they're going to take Jericho. Jericho is the first city, and who do they encounter but Rahab? Rahab becomes the mother of Boaz. Now, Boaz is probably old. I mean, like really old, like 60. Uh, so he's, pro- he's probably pretty old. We, we don't know exactly. Maybe he's just 40 or 50. But he, his, his Ray, uh, excuse me, Rahab is probably quite a bit older than that. So I would venture to say they've been in the land maybe around 100 years. We don't know exactly. 80 to 100 years. So it's in the beginning of the time of the judges. And it is that time, that's the time in which Israelites continued to, remember we talked about last week, ABCDs, apostasy, bondage, confession, crying out, and then deliverer, God sending a deliverer. And the people were moving away. They were constantly worshiping the gods and serving the gods of the peoples around them. So it is possible that this was happening. God brought a famine, but we don't even know that. Whatever the reason is, they had to leave, at least so they felt. And again, we can't weigh in on that. Why would you leave the promised land? Why don't you just move to another area of Israel? We don't know. I do know this, that I, excuse me, Israel, with all 70 of of his descendants, left Canaan and went to Egypt because there was food in Egypt. So I'm not going to cast judgment. I don't know the whole story. But how ironic it is that there was no bread in the house of bread. And then finally, 10 years later, there is bread. And this sets up them moving away. And whether that was in disobedience, we truly don't know. However, while she's away, she loses her husband and her two sons. And she truly believes that the hand of the Lord is against her. It says that right here in verse 13. It is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. It says later on in verse, let me find it here, verse 20 It says, call me Mara, which means bitter, because the almighty, El Shaddai, literally all-powerful, almighty, has made my life very bitter. It says in the next verse, the Lord has afflicted me. The almighty 
has brought misfortune upon me. Why the emphasis on the Almighty? I'm going to guess that it's for this reason. If God is truly Almighty, then only He is the one who's going to eventually allow good in your life, but eventually He is the one who's going to permit the evil. And she's aware of this. Now, let's understand that it's not that God causes evil, but God does permit it. And many times a Jew would say, the Lord has afflicted me. And what they mean is not that God is the one who is just saying, you know what, I'm going to punish you, but that the Lord is allowing it. We see these examples like in, in chapter 42, last chapter of the book of Job. The Bible says, and God did all, God sent all of these tragedies upon Joab. Wait a second. God sent all of these tragedies? God afflicted Job because in chapter 1, who was the real, who was the main person who did it? See, it was Satan. So God permitted it. Now, in theology, they say there's a difference between primary agency and secondary agency. Primary agency is when God truly is the one who steps in and he parts the Red Sea. That's primary agency. Secondary agency is something like, and God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Did God reach inside Pharaoh's heart and just hold it? Did he harden it? No. I don't know of a single theologian who would accept that. They all understand it through secondary agency, and, and it could have been just the sin in Pharaoh's heart surging and controlling in the pride, just saying no. Or it could have been the court officials who began to say things and those words hardened his heart, but God permitted it even though his people's freedom, Israel's freedom was at stake here. God permitted that. And we understand why, right? In view of this, I mean, my goodness, they, they continued to be slaves because God hardened Pharaoh's heart. But why did he do it? so that all of Israel would see the mighty right hand of God as he brought judgment upon Egypt and all of Egypt's gods. So he permitted this. So I'm just simply saying that it would be very common, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, to hear a writer saying, and God did this. Well, he may have done it either through, what, primary agency, or he may have done it through secondary agency. He permitted it. So do you see? So I'm not going to suggest that she has her theology all mixed up, that God is just afflicting her. She's not repenting. There doesn't seem to be sin here. So I'm going to use this phrase, she's flirting with bitterness. Now I'm going to suggest, however, that at this point, it doesn't seem as if she's bitter towards the Lord. And, and granted, it's based on one verse, but if you would look at verse 8, it says, Naomi says to her two daughters-in-law, go back, each of you to your mother's house, your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you as you have shown to your dead and to me. I, I just don't hear bitterness. I don't hear like sarcasm. Oh, go back to the Lord because maybe he'll be good to you because obviously he hasn't been good to me. You know, I, I don't hear that. And so I'm going to suggest that she is recognizing her life is so bitter. She is flirting with that bitterness. She is, she is a step away from becoming bitter towards the Lord, it seems. 
Is Naomi bitter towards God? I would say no. Is she flirting with bitterness? I would say it appears so. But by the end of the book, we are convinced Naomi moves from being empty to being full. And she's clearly living in thriving mode. Now, not just because of the blessings, but let me just say this. God's grace has been poured out upon her life for reasons we need to look at. And she has been so greatly encouraged. How did this happen? How did Naomi come from this, this place of viewing life as bitter to this and feeling empty as if God, for whatever reasons, it could be just reasons, she's not blaming God like you're so unjust. She's just simply saying, you know what? This is my lot. And it's bitter. How does she move from that to this place of God is so good? And we see that in at the very end. And remember verse 21, she says she went, she went away full and she comes back empty. That's life circumstances. But something happens in her heart. What, I'm going to share with you two reasons why she moves from survival mode and on the precipice of falling into survival mode, into true bitterness that will eat her alive. And if you've ever experienced bitterness like that, it's like this cloud that walks with you everywhere you go, everywhere you go. And one day you think you're finally free from it, but the next day it's like, there it is again. It's all stirred up. I'm just so angry. I'm so bitter. Ugh. How does she get, get out? Let me observe, number one, God pours out just a little bit of grace upon her life. Remember I told you that when we are at this place where we are in survival, where we're exhausted, life is hard, we begin to flirt with survival mode. Survival mode then steps into compromise, and that's what the Israelites did. When, they, when God's grace had finally been given to them and they had received, remember, they, were, they became strong. That's God's grace. What did they do? Did they finally defeat the enemy, the, the Canaanites and Amorites and Hittites on their land? No, they didn't. There's a good advantage, financial advantage, and they pressed them into forced labor. They did not obey God, and they stepped into compromise right then and there. There they were. They were strong enough. They were feeling weary as it was. But now that they're strong enough, yeah, we can do this. We know how to take care of the giants. We know how to take care of the, uh, you know, how determined that they are. We know how to take care of the fortified cities and get us. But you know what? We're not going to do that. Because, I mean, come on. They're not that bad. Yeah, well, that relaxed mentality opened the door for them to compromise generation after generation after generation. And church, remember, I, we, I challenged you, I said, look, if we're not careful, that's how we're going to view our sin. That our sin, oh, it's not that bad. I mean, you want to talk about sin, let me talk, tell you about my brother. Let me tell you about this person. Now that is sin, okay? But my, mine's just, mine's little. It's not really hurting anybody. Yeah, but I tell you what, it is destroying you and it is squeezing the very spiritual life out of you but you can't see it. 
And so here is just that little bit of grace that God offers to Naomi that, praise God, she takes advantage of. And God simply allows Bethlehem to flourish again. That's all he does, flourish again. She had left her homeland, and now she's determined, I'm going to go back to my homeland. I'm going to go back to the promised land. Listen to what I'm saying, and I want you to personalize it. Naomi's saying, I'm going back to everything God promised my people. Do you hear what she's really saying? I'm going to go back. I'm going to return. And when she goes back, she becomes full. Hmm. She apprehends the grace of God. After 10 years, the house of bread finally had bread, food again. She leaves Moab. She's willing to leave even her daughters-in-law and she seeks to live in the promised land again. She even, she recognizes, you know what, daughters-in-law, I love you, but it's so unfair for me to ask that you go with me. I'm an Israelite. You're Moabites. Go back to your homeland. Now, I'm wondering where Naomi is spiritually and I'm going to, again, and I meant, I meant to mention this earlier, but reason why I think she's really flirting with compromise, really flirting with survival mode, is she encourages her daughters-in-law to go back to their people and, do you remember what the text said? And their gods. Do you know who the god of, god of Moab is? Now, it says God, so I'm going to assume there's more than one, but the main deity that they worshipped, the main god, was Chemosh. Chemosh was the Moabite god that demanded human sacrifice, and most specifically, child sacrifice. The King James puts it literally, and it says, and they passed their children through the fire. They literally burned their children alive as an offering to Chemosh. There were other gods in Canaan that demanded such sacrifices. And same with the Boabites. And Naomi is saying, go back to your people and your gods. I'm just thinking, Naomi, what are you thinking? And I can't help but wonder, and I'm not being firm on this, but do you believe that God has failed you? And why would you want to come and worship my God? Can I just ask you, in your own Christian witness, when you have gone through hard times, is it hard to evangelize? Because in essence, you're saying, hey, come serve the God that I serve, who's allowed me to go through all of these horrible circumstances. And there is a, at least a twinge of bitterness in your heart, and you know it. And it is so hard for you to evangelize, so hard for you to draw people to Jesus. Because, and I even had someone tell me this, saying the things that he was, Mike, how can I tell people about Jesus? when well, he's allowed me to go through so much, so much. I mean, this is what I get for being a Christian. Well, I don't have time to address all of that tonight. You've heard me preach on this many times before. And the devil sets us up, doesn't he? And I can kind of hear that, it seems, and go back to your people and your gods. Oh, 
because my God has not, she doesn't say he has failed her, but my God hasn't come through for me. And he's allowed, the Almighty has allowed all of this horrible, I mean, he's the Almighty. He's allowed this. She's struggling, church. But here's this glimmer of hope. Here is this possibility, this ounce of grace, if you will. And she says, I'm doing it. I'm heading back to the promised land. You don't need to come with me. And the result is that she steps into this, onto this pathway of personal healing in which God begins to pull her out of survival mode, pull her out of her bitterness, pull her out of flirting with that compromise and the degree to which she actually compromises, we just don't know. But can I ask you, what would have happened if she just stayed there? What would have happened if she had just chosen to just rent a home in the far corner and just, hey, ladies, you don't need to see me, and just live her life day to day all by herself in her bitterness. God had extended grace. And I'm going to just tell you right now, if you're flirting with this survival, flirting with compromise, God extends that grace. What are you going to do about it? What are you going to do? Can I just tell you, what do you call it when God tells you, hey, this is the way I want you to go, but you respond, thanks anyway, Lord, I got this. I'm heading this way. What do you call that? What do you call it when a child, when you tell a child a direct order and they say, no thanks, and they head in the different direction? What do you call that, church? Disobedience? What else do you call it? Rebellion. There you go. It's rebellion. What's at the heart of that rebellion, though? I'm going to do it my way. What do you call that? So you would call that pride or arrogance. The Bible says that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And she is responding not in pride. She's responding humbly. I'm going to return to my homeland. I'm going to seize this grace. God is doing something good. I'm I'm going to do this. God had called them to live in the promised land for a reason. And she goes back there. That's a word to some of you. You're wandering away from the inheritance that God has given you, and he's calling you back to it. That's the extension of his grace to you. Seize that opportunity. Seize, apprehend that grace. You see, what happens is if we say no to God and we are filled with pride, we cut off his grace. He wants to give it to us, but we cut it off. There's no promise of grace to the proud. If you cut it off, you cut it off. I'm not saying he will never show grace to you again. I'm not suggesting that. But don't reject God's grace. Repent People repent of knowing sin. See, it's rebellion when we know we are not supposed to be bitter, but we just say, you know what? It's easier. It's easier. I don't have to apologize to anybody, and I'm definitely not apologizing to that person. I'm just going to remain bitter. That is rebellion. That is pride. And there is no grace for that. 
if we harbor knowing sin, David says, if I cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have heard me. Mm. When God says, hey, I want you to live this way. It's one thing to stumble into sin and then repent, but it's another thing to stumble in that sin and not repent. And just say, you know, I'm, I'm just going to live this way. I kind of like wallowing in the mire. I kind of like eating pig swill because that's what the lost son did. But even the lost son, the Bible says he came to his senses. Church, some of us, we just need to come to our senses and say, God, I'm wearied by my sin. I'm wearied by this comfort. It has not helped me out one little bit. Has not helped me out. It has kind of put a Band-Aid on the real issue, but that real issue is not healed. And I'm going to just tell you, it will never be healed in your rebellion. Won't. It won't. There's no grace in rebellion. God is wanting to offer us rebellion, offer us grace, but we have to be willing to repent of that sin and turn to the Lord and humble ourselves, and he gives us grace. Because God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And so Naomi took advantage of this, and God extended grace to her. Now, when I, I remember when I was ministering to, to Frank, just as, as much as a 25-year-old could, and many times I would pull my Bible out during lunch break in the, in the lunch break room, and Frank would come in there, and he would laugh, so you're reading the Bible, huh? Yep. Yeah, I remember those days when I would do that. Yep, mm-hmm, yep. And, and he would make a little bit of fun with me, but not too much because he, he actually began to like me a little bit. I was shocked by that. I was his nemesis, and he started liking me at least a little bit. I could, I could see it. He started joking with me. Um, and, and Frank was not a jokester necessarily. He, he was just a bitter old man, honestly. He was a curmudgeon. He was a curmudgeon. But I can remember just sharing some scripture verses with him just here and there and just trying to understand his bitterness and then just suggest some things to him. I remember when he came to me one day, and he said, so I started reading my Bible. I almost had a heart attack. What? And my wife and I went to church. What? Blew me away. God was beginning to do something in his heart. God begins to do something in Naomi's heart. But guess what? This book is not entitled Naomi. What is it entitled? Because it's about Ruth. Ruth was the one who at this point does something that so ministers to Naomi, God reveals even more grace through Ruth to Naomi. How do we see that? The first thing is that Ruth commits to Naomi. Look here in verse 16. It says, uh, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my, your God will be my God. Do you, do you hear? She is making a solid confession she is not going to worship the Chemish God or whatever God she worshipped. She's not returning to her homeland or her homeland's religion. She is following Naomi, and she is going to worship Yahweh. Your God will be my God. I am following him now, and I am going to be with you. 
And so strong is this commitment. She says, where you die, I will die. Naomi's probably going to die a few decades or quite a while before Ruth. She's going to stay. That's where I'm going to die too. That will be my homeland. May the Lord, listen to this, may the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates me from you. Wow, that is commitment. Now, in our foundations class, one of the, one of the lessons of the 10 lessons is entitled covenant relationships. And I begin by saying this is not a biblical term. Covenant is, relationships is, but you don't see them covenant relationships in the Bible. But I'm going to suggest to you that what we call covenant, which is at the the heart of which is commitment, that is the type of relationships that we're supposed to have in the body of Christ. And so for that reason, I call them covenant relationships, okay? I want to be careful you don't take that too far, but commitment. You know, even in marriages, we understand this idea of commitment. You know, I'm going to just suggest that when we go through life, our spouse can be the most significant Ruth, even though that spouse might be a male, that significant Ruth in our life that will help us not settle in survival mode. There's a young man in our church. His wife is going through so much. Every week, I'm just blown away by the next thing that's happened, next thing, the next thing. And Cat. Their insurance just ran out. So she can't receive care at home right now until they get new insurance. So she has, she has certain procedures that she really needs, and she's already seeing the side effects of not having them. And it's been only just a day or two or whatever. Wow. But her husband's name is Cody. I've known Cody for most of his life. He probably They probably moved here when he was, what, Seven? He was seven? Okay. And so I've known Cody since he was seven. So that's been 23 years plus. And Cody has always had a compassion for hurting people. And when you're going through something, he just wants to serve. He wants he wants to help. And if, if a lot of people, they're just too busy, Cody finds time. And Cody has served his wife and such a support and just encouragement. And no matter what, he is devoted to Kat, devoted to her. That's commitment. And when we're going through hard, when you're going through hard times, you need someone who's committed to you. It's going to call you when you need to call. That's going to just encourage you, send you a text, a scripture passage. You're going to need someone who's just going to love on you for no reason other than the fact that you are their friend. That's it. It's not because you served them or that you did something. They're repaying you. No, it's just because they love you. That's it. And Ruth loved Naomi. I know... Sarah Jeffords is toying with the idea of moving. Sarah Jeffords has three boys. And two and a half years ago, she lost her husband. He was one of my closest friends. Just gone like that. A few hours later, it happened at 4.30 in the morning. And about 8 o'clock in the, the next morning, 9 o'clock, I found out devastated me. Totally rocked Sarah's world and her boys. I remember when one of them came up to me shortly afterwards 
and it just broke my heart. And he came up to me, and he said, Pastor Mike, my dad died. Yes, yes, he did. And I just knelt down, and I hugged him. And there wasn't a lot that I could do, but I just I told him, I, you know, he's in heaven, and I'm so sorry that you're going to have to wait until one day you get to see your daddy again, but he's with Jesus right now. And I know that he is cheering you on. And I just thought about, you know, Sarah's going to be moving. She's like a daughter to my wife and I. And she's my oldest daughter's best friend. And we've known each other for 15, 20 years. And they're going to be moving, probably, probably moving this summer to Pennsylvania. And so I've already decided before they go, I'm going to pull her three boys together. I'm going to say, look, I want you to know that your dad was one of my closest friends. And I've known all of you kids since you were born. And I just want you to know I love you to death. You're never going to get rid of me. I'm always going to be there. You guys are moving to Pennsylvania. And I just want you to know I don't, I, I don't know when I'm going to see you next. It could be years. I just don't know. But if you ever need anything, if you just need another man to talk to, I'm only a phone call away. If you ever come down here and visit, I want to be the first ones that you get to see. But you know what, kids? I'm, I'm for you. And if I can ever help you, you give me a call, and I'm going to be there for you. I just want to assure them that I still love them. That's how we treat one another. That's how we help each other out of survival mode. And she, she was willing to, Ruth sacrificed everything, left everything to do this, to follow God, the true God, and to serve Naomi, her mother-in-law. Sorry, I need to move on quickly here. The second thing that, that Ruth does is she doesn't just verbalize commitment, she does it. She does it. She leaves her homeland, she leaves her false gods, she sacrifices and works Boaz's fields and does kind of cleanup work. Now, in the Old Testament, there was something called the gleaning laws. And you were not allowed to reap the corners of your field. Nor were you allowed to go through your fields a second time to pick up the grain that was left behind. Because they go through it pretty quickly. Nope, leave it for the poor. Let them reap the corners and let them come through and glean what's left behind. Don't you do it. It's for the poor. And so she is aware of this. And by the way, that's a great way so that the poor can work, earn a living. And so Ruth does this, and she works all day. And Boaz recognizes this, and this is what Boaz says. I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you've left your father and mother in your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord, Yahweh, is the, it's the covenantal name he gives, may the Lord, Yahweh, repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by Yahweh, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. She sacrifices. She works hard. She finds a way to help her mother-in-law. Naomi was empty, and now she's full. Look at the very end, because as the story unfolds, Boaz, 
her kinsman redeemer, in other words, the closest, second closest relative, the first one turned the opportunity down, but was willing to buy her Naomi's land, which I'm sure wasn't much, and her home, and marry Ruth. And he does this. Chapter 4, verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. Then he went to her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer, referring to Boaz. May he become famous throughout Israel. I am assuming now they're referring to Obed, his son. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child, laid him on her lap and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. And then what unfolds is a ge- 10 genealogies, a genealogy rather of 10 names. 10 in Hebrew is full. Now, they don't just mention the names of those in the story or the ones that I just mentioned, but they named, they go back 10 and then conclude with David just so that the author of Ruth can tell you 10. 10 meaning abundance, meaning ample supply, full. And who does, it con- who does it conclude with? David, King David, the, the man of God's choosing, the king that led Israel in its battles. They were victorious. He's the one who extended their kingdom to the Euphrates. He's the one that led them in all of their battles. He was triumphant. He was the measuring rod of God's righteousness. Every king following David was lined up with King David. Did David have faults? Yes, he did but he was a man after God's own heart. So here is Boaz, uh, Naomi's kinsman redeemer, marrying Ruth, and it concludes her fullness now is seen in David. And let me just tell you, though this kinsman redeemer opened the door so that their great-grandson was David, great-great-grandson was David, There is a son of David that was to come, the true fulfillment of kinsman redeemer. So that on on Palm Sunday, those in Israel gathered declaring, this is the king. He's come in the name of the Lord. Worship him, praise him. And they worshiped him and they praised and they were so grateful to the Lord. So that, and and then it just so ticked off the Pharisees. He goes into the temple area and he begins healing the sick and the children are like, oh, Hosanna, wow. Guess what? The kinsman redeemer, the one who can pull you lost in your sin, out of your sin, into an abundant life, the one who can take all of your emptiness and fill you up has come. The redeemer who can take every horrible situation that's making you bitter and turn it around for the greater good who even allowed this kinsman redeemer to die on a cross to permit the greatest good for you. That's the God we serve. That's the God that can take all of your emptiness and fill you up. Church, that is a good God. 
God is revealing his grace to you today. Don't say no to it. His compassion for you is so much more than you could ever imagine. He has not given up on you, though at times you have thought about giving up on him. He has not turned his back on you. And I love that little poem that, you know, footprints in which there's one set of footprints in the hardest times of my life. And the confession is yes, because those were the times Jesus said, I carried you. And maybe today he needs to carry you. But that's his grace. Don't turn it down. Step into it. Lean into it today. Church, can you stand with me? Father, what a privilege it is to be the recipients of your great grace. What a privilege it is to have other grace recipients around us, the Ruths in our life, and some of them are guys and some of them are girls, but Lord, they too have said yes. And they can reach into our lives and they can be Ruths to us in our moments of bitterness, in our moments of trials and harm and hurt. And they can help lift us out. And I just ask you, Father, show us the Naomi's in our lives. Show us those people that we can encourage and build up. The people that we can serve and sacrifice for. The people that you have called us to that you want to pour your grace through us to them to help redeem their situations. And I just ask you, Father, give us humble hearts. If we're in survival mode, if we're struggling, if we're dealing with bitterness, God, you are bigger than all of that. Don't let us turn aside your grace. Please, God, speak to our hearts right now. Set us free from that, God minister truth and grace. Thank you. Thank you, God. So, Father, I just ask for all of us minister that grace. Let us stand in that grace. Let us walk in that grace. Let us live in that grace. In this moment, right now, church, just reach out to him. If you need to repent of something because you've been stubbornly living in sin, then repent of it. But don't repent tonight and then go back to it. Truly cry out to him to change your heart. And if you're truly repentant, he will do that because that's just who God is. So I'm asking, Father, help us. We're weak, but in our weakness, may your ample grace be shown to be more than enough. In Jesus' name I pray.